Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this episode, a fan of history. Hello, Dan. Hello, Bernie. What do we got today? Today we're going to talk about... uh the general happenings and in the 580s BC in Egypt, in Babylon, in the Levant. And of course, we're going to talk about the Battle of the Eclipse. Nice. Hey, I want to, can I shout out our sponsor, Marduk's Mattress Emporium? Quick, because their, their flagship store in Babylon is amazing now. It's, I mean, the one that burned down in Nineveh, that was bad. You know, that was a bad situation. But that flagship store in Babylon is amazing now. Um, so definitely check out. They don't have a website because websites haven't been invented yet. But, you know, just check out in all the major cities around the Near East, around even in Egypt, Marduk's Mattress Emporium. Do they have like clay flyers? They do have clay flyers and some in paper for the Arameans. And then they have clay flyers for in cuneiform. And they also have in... Um, in hieroglyphics, and maybe coming soon in Greek. They're going to think about moving up into Lydia there because we're moving. They're moving some um, emporiums into uh, media because the Medes are not sleeping on the floors anymore. They like the feather mattresses. Actually, there's a really new feather mattress comes from Egypt from the sacred feathers of the ibis bird. And Great. Yeah, it's amazing. So you know their slogan: If you want to make love like a god, mattress. I'm sorry, Marduk's Mattress Emporium. So thanks, thanks, guys, for sponsoring our podcast. And this is, of course, the decade of Marduk, because the Babylonians are the superpower now. Mm-hmm. We 
talked about Nebuchadnezzar and his uh, dealings with Jerusalem in the episode you and Gilded. Correct. So we'll skip that part. Yeah, well, he's still around, that's for sure. He's going to be around this whole decade. Yeah, and he's also worried about uh, Egyptian influence in all the places he has conquered. So Nebuchadnezzar is doing uh, a lot of military action in the Levant. Right. Against vassal states and make sure that they are in order and that they obey the Babylonians and Marduk. Right. I mean, yeah, it's that's not in Marduk exactly. It's not just like in a, when an Assyrian king switches and then a little rebellion. This is was a bigger switch, you know, from the Assyrians to the Babylonians. They want to make sure they still hold on to that empire. Yes. And Nebuchadnezzar is supposed to be born in 642. Okay. So he's 52 years old at the beginning of this decade. Oh, he's like our age. Yeah, so he's getting older. Yeah. Egypt, uh, then, the first news from there is in 589. And that's the death of Samedicus II. Oh, okay. He's succeeded by Apreus, his son by his queen Takut. And Takut and Samedicus had several children that we know about. They had two daughters as well, Menikubaste and Agnes Neferibribib. <laughs> okay, I'll do that again. <laughs> Come on, Agnes Neferibribib. Woo! <laughs> I apologize for my Egyptian pronunciation. Oh, I don't think any apologies are necessary. <laughs> Menikubaste is a priestess of some importance. But her sister, Agnes Neferibrebb, is the <laughs> god's wife of a moon. Yeah. And she serves in this powerful office for a long time. Yeah. She will actually be around in 525 BC wow. when Egypt is conquered by foreign power. But we'll get back to that in the 520s. No spoilers. Amazing how these priestesses live so long, isn't it? They cover such a... If, boy, if they kept a diary, man, could you imagine all the, the changes and stuff? Wow. Definitely. That would be a great book. Just like make up a thing, the diary of, yeah, Akinesa Ribery. <laughs> I don't think Apreus is that interested in fighting with the Babylonians. Right. He is an active builder. Okay. He, he does a lot of temple stuff. Okay. But of course he must face the Babylonian menace because mm-hmm. Babylonian influence is spreading everywhere. Yeah. And it's not like, you know, Egypt hadn't been conquered really for thousands of years and then the Assyrians came in. So now they know they do need that buffer area. Well, don't forget about the Nubians who actually conquered Egypt. True, true. But that's from the south. So that's true. And they really beat them up pretty good. But there's another powerful state around that helped the Babylonians get rid of the Assyrians, the Medes. Oh, for sure they are. So they're still led by Saxaris. Yeah. Saxaris. Saxaris. I've heard it's pronounced a lot of different ways. Uh, he is busy doing uh, stuff in Anatolia. Mm-hmm. And there, as we mentioned in the last decade, they come up against the Lydians. Right, because they had gone through them. They, they knocked out the... Uh... The Urartans. Yes, and the Scythians and the Sumerians are also reduced in power. Right, in that area, for sure. 
Lydia wants to expand to the east and the Medes want to expand to the west. Mm-hmm. And they now come up against each other face to face. Yeah. They're starting to really rub up against each other. Lydia is becoming powerful because of that, you know, we we talked about a few decades ago where they invented money and coinage. So that coinage let, allows them to buy a lot of mercenaries. Yes. And and there is a demand from Cyaxares to the Lydian king Aljattes, who yeah, we have talked I, about quite a bit. Yeah, I want to definitely talk about that. Can I talk about that? Please talk about that. Because I love this. I love Herodotus' stories because they're great. They're just, they're crazy. Right? So, yeah. Let me see where we go. Because Herodotus is, as we know, the father of history, but also could be the father of... So, here's how it happened, right? So, here's what he says. I'm not reading it. I'm just telling you. I'm paraphrasing it. There's a tribe of wandering Scythians who separated themselves from their main tribe and moved into the land controlled by the Medes and Syaxaris, right? I look at these Medes like... I'm sorry, not the Medes, the Scythians. They're, They're like native tribal people. They're like... You know, Native Americans back when the Europeans came along, they have just, you know, their tribal confederations sometimes, but sometimes not. So there's all different groups and they're very nomadic. You know, they don't always settle down. So this particular group moved away from their main tribe. Maybe they were having fights with them or for whatever reason. And according to Herodotus, that Syaxaris let them stay in their territory. And he had them teach their noble Median boys their language, teach them hunting, archery, that kind of stuff, because they're, you know, they're good warriors or good hunters. So one day they go out hunting, these Scythians, with the, um, with the boys and everything, but they came back empty-handed. So Syaxaris gives them a hard time, insults them and stuff, right? So Herodotus makes Syaxaris out to be a nasty king. He, he does that with a lot of the Medes and Persians. He just makes them out to be these evil kings. So, so the Scythians, they figure they'll get back at him and they, by cranking it up a couple of notches here. They take one of the boys, one of the noble boys, out on their next hunting trip, and they cut him up like game and served him to Syaxaris. So they're like, here's, oh, yeah, we got some antelope and some stuff. Here you go. And it was one of their kids. And he ate him. So they hightail it out to Lydia and say, like, get protection from Aliates. That is like, sometimes you'll say, like, yeah, well, even, you know, we read, like, well, Aliates wouldn't give up the Scythians. Well, that's, what, that's the reason that uh, Syaxaris was so pissed at these, at these Scythians. So anyway, then there's a quote here. This is the quote here about the, so then, so I'm sorry, so then now they start having a lot of battles and stuff, you know, and there's a quote here from Herodotus. This is basically what we have on it. I don't know if you want to read that. Can you see it there? Yeah, quoting Herodotus. Yeah. Afterwards, on the refusal of Aliatis to give up the Sidians, when Saxarus sent to demand them of him, war broke out between the Lydians and the Medes and continued for five years with various success. In the course of it, the Medes gained many victories over the Lydians, and the Lydians also gained many victories over the Medes. As, however, the balance had not inclined in favor of either nation, a combat took place in the sixth year, in the course of which, just as the battle was growing warm, day was on a sudden changed into night. This event had been foretold by Thales the Milesian, who forewarned the Ionians of it, fixing for it the very year in which it actually took place. The Medes and Lydians, when they observed the change, ceased fighting and were alike anxious to have terms of peace agreed on. End quote. Mm-hmm. 
So they've been fighting for six years. Suddenly the sun turns black. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, no, this is bad. Let's make yeah. peace. Must, that definitely we would think is a sign. You know, if you're that kind of superstitious like they all were. Amazing, though, right? And they make peace. Yeah. And this peace is actually observed. Yeah, they did. As long as these guys were in charge for the time, Alietes and Syaxaris. There was the, they, they set the Halas River as their border. And this was actually this was actually where the where the conflict began. So nobody gained anything. No, that's always the border. Except this daughter of Aliates, who was married to Saxer's son, Astyages. 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 Yeah. So there's a royal marriage to celebrate the peace. Yeah, and let's see how long that lasts. Well, it does last between the Medes and the and the. The, the actual Medes and the um, Lydians, it does, it does last. Yes, so this is a great re- recipe for peace. Yeah. A solar eclipse. Yeah, solar eclipse, a marrying of your daughter, it's a good, good deal. They say that the, um, the Lydians were, the main Lydians were are like heavily armored knights. Not, you didn't call them knights then, but, you know, cavalry. And then they had lots of mercenaries. That sounds like a bad uh, way to fight in the mountains. You would think, yeah. They must, I mean, for whatever reason, they were, to me, I always think, you don't think of Lydia as such a powerful kingdom and this giant Median kingdom, but they really did, you know, hold the Medes off all those years. They gave back and forth to them. We'll get definitely, there's a lot more going to happen there. And that was the Battle of the Eclipse. That's it. That's all we know. That's all we know. That's all we know. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I have something about Elam. Oh. Yeah. There's a description by the prophet Ezekiel of the status of Elam in the 580s BC. So now quoting Ezekiel. There is Elam and all her multitude, all around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who have gone down uncircumcised to the lower parts of the earth, who caused their terror in the land of the living, now 
they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. End quote. This is from Ezekiel 32-24. So Elam, not in a good shape. No, well, we know what happened to them. There's there's still something about, there's still like, because you'll find out later in Cyrus's writing that he there's some of his proclamations are still written in Elamite. So there must be Elamites around, but not too many. Yes, and they are ruled by the king of Anshan, that is the Persian leader who is a vassal of the Medes. That is right. After the conquest of Jerusalem, there is some Jewish administration left in the region. There is a governor under close Babylonian supervision. Okay. Also around the time of the Battle of the Eclipse, Nebuchadnezzar claims to control lands in Cilicia and Lydia. Oh, that's going to start a little trouble. And so the Babylonians are nearby when the Battle of the Eclipse happens. Yeah. And this peace that was negotiated is actually witnessed by some Babylonians and some Cilicians. Yeah, you mentioned that, and at last that there was a king in Cilicia that was sort of a negotiator, right? Yes, so they are the negotiators in the peace. Nice. But uh, I think they were helped quite a bit by the solar eclipse. Yeah, that probably would. <laughs> they were like, no more war. Nebuchadnezzar claims to have been the negotiator. Huh, he's quite a guy, that Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, but there is another guy from uh, Babylonia there, perhaps. And the sources tell us that his name is Labunitus. Oh, Labunitus. Oh, yes. Nabunitus. Labunitus. With an L or with an N? L, Labunitus. Oh, okay, that's not Nabunitus. This is a different guy, Labunitus. Okay. Yeah, but this is the Greek name for Nabunidus. Oh, that's what I was thinking, right? Yeah. And Nabunidus is a guy who will show up later in our story as the king of Babylon. Yeah. And this is a very complicated character. And he could have been a Babylonian official at the time of the Battle of the Eclipse in 585. So there is a question if this actually was Nabonidus, who was there as as a witness on behalf of Babylon. You remember who his mother was, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. The priestess of Sin. Yeah. And possibly the daughter of Ashurbanipal. Right. It's crazy. It's crazy how these like families are connected, right? Oh yes. Really interesting. So there is this lasting peace. Yeah. And you would think that Saxeris and Aliates enjoy the peace. I would think. But they both die in five eighty five BC. <laughs> And they've been around for quite some time. Yeah, they have. Hey, could I mention something before we go farther on to Babylon and the Jews in Babylon? There was something just I wanted to just before I forget, I think, and keeps it in our timeline too. Um, Please don't. They just did the podcast with Gil, and he has podcasts on it too, the podcast of biblical proportions. A lot of the Exodus story and the, and the, the Egyptian captivity and things were a big part of it was written, and probably by Ezekiel, which he pronounces differently, like Ezekiel. But it was written, and it's the captivity in in Egypt was really the captivity in Babylon, and parts of it. So uh, the whole Exodus story, you know, 
was probably written by three different authors. It's biggest, like a big collaboration over time and space. But part of it would have been written here during this time by Ezekiel. And basically, you know, the, the evil Pharaoh was really Nebuchadnezzar was the evil. And it was a metaphor. So I think that's pretty interesting. You know, this time period, a lot of parts that we know in the Bible, the basics, basis of even Judaism, you know, the Moses and story and stuff. A big part of it was written here. Then we'll find out in another episode on the What's New in History that we recorded. Well, you know, hundreds of years later is the final end of the story. Not the end of the story, when they finished it, edited it, and put it all together. Changed it again. Ah. So, yeah. So it's kind of a criticism of Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, yeah. Nebuchadnezzar's like the evil, dumb, the evil, dumb, like, king, you know? He does stu- things like, you know, leave Moses in a basket and stuff like that. He's a big dummy. <laughs> He's like the evil king, and he makes the whips the Hebrews and stuff like that, makes them do extra work, make more bricks. So it's based on stuff like that. Most of the things in the Bible are based on other stories or metaphor. You would have known them at the time, but now that they're 2,000 years later, 2,500 years later, we kind of think they're all one story. That makes sense. Yeah, it's very interesting. So anyway, sorry, a little sidebar there. So back to the Medes. Yeah, the Medes. When Cyrus dies... He must have yeah. been super old. His official mm-hmm. reign is 68 years. Okay. Which makes it uh, unbelievable. But the median source is not the best. It's all over the place. There's so many, because of Cyrus and him being involved, there's like Xenophon has stories on him. They have Herodotus has them. They have them at all different times. I would not want to be a scholar to try to have to put that together. There's so many. Ugh, it's all over the place. So, yeah. So his son takes over the kingship of the Medes, Astyages. Astyages, right. Astyages, yes. He'll play a big part in stuff. (laughs) And he then has peace and a large empire. Yep. And the two closest power players are his brothers-in-law, Croesus of Lydia, who we'll get to very soon, and Nebuchadnezzar himself, because Nebuchadnezzar's wife, Amitis is Astyages' sister. And in the old version of the story of the Hanging Gardens, this is the woman that Nebuchadnezzar built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon for. But we now know that Sennacherib built those gardens. Yes, we our official fan of history position is Sennacherib built them. And Astyages just got a wife, uh, Aryanis, who is the sister of Croesus, as a part of the deal for the peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so these three major empires are all like uh, you know intermarried now. It, it seems to be a great uh, premise for a long-lasting peace. I mean, it's still why don't they just keep it? Like, I don't know why people are they had a fight in these days. You know, like they could have had a really good thing going, not a business. Probably be in space by now if they just didn't fight it out. <laughs> and now I will tell you all we know about Astyages' reign as the king of the Medes. Okay, uh, pretty much. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. Because well, there's he a good is... story in Herodotus on him, but I'm sorry, I won't interrupt you, but we'll, yeah, we'll do we'll, that one We'll later. get back to the stories about him, but we really don't know... Right, right, right. ...much about him. Right. Herodotus hates him. Oh. Xenophon depicts him as a kindly old gentleman devoted to his grandson, yep. Cyrus. Yep. Believe it, I li- I read, well, I listened to on tape a ton of Xenophons on Cyrus. And he, yeah, Cyrus and Astyages are, wow, they love each other. 
Xenophon uh, is not the best source. No, it's totally fiction, I think. It's just a metaphor, but it is interesting. Remember I said that there were negotiators from Babylon and from Cilicia. Yeah. So it seems that Cilicia is still a state. Yeah. It has been around since the early Iron Age, like a Neo-Hittite state. Like a Neo-Hittite, I was just going to say, yeah. The, from the Neo-Hittite state, Q. Q. Okay, right? yeah. Que. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Our Assyrians used to do a lot of fighting there. Yeah, it was an Assyrian province from time to time, but it's still around. Yeah. I feel like Sargon went there when he got... Isn't that where Sargon ended up? And that must have been close to the place where Sargon died. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and as I mentioned, the Lydian king also died. Aliatus died shortly after the Battle of the Eclipse. Okay. But this succession wasn't as easy as the median one. So there was a power struggle between okay. two of his sons. He had a son with some Greek woman called Pantaleon. Okay. And he had a son called Croesus. Okay. Whose mother was a Carrion. Okay. But as you know, Croesus won this battle. Right. There is a tomb uh, for Aliates. Mm-hmm. And it seems that th- this is the real tomb of Aliates, excavated in 1853 by a Prussian, and then later in the 60s and 80s. It was probably looted and plundered before this. Sure, of course. But it's a large tumulus at the site now called Bin Tepe. Okay. It's 60 meters in height and 250 meters in diameter. Yeah, they're big on their tombs in Lydia there. Yes, it's a gigantic tomb. They even have, like, influences, they say, all the way from India and stuff. There's similar types of tombs, which is interesting, too. Aliates is often credited, as we mentioned, as the inventor of the first coins during his reign. Exactly. Stater. But now, a much more famous king of Lydia, Croesus. Pay attention to him. Yeah, he's going to be important. He will be around. He'll be around until 546. BC, and there's a reason you recognize his name. Why is that? Oh, we'll tell you all about that in our upcoming all right. episodes. All right, yeah. He is a very... Herodotus does a lot on Croesus, too. He was probably born in 620. That would make him 35 at the Battle of the Eclipse. Okay. God, 620 seems like the old days, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Still have the Assyrians around. And this is his... Uh, Latin Greek name. Yeah. We maybe have a Lydian name for him, like Quadans or something. Oh, wow. But uh, his name is not in the Lydian inscriptions from this time. Hmm. That's interesting, too. When there were language they spoke there in Lydia at the time, do we know? Uh, I think they spoke Lydian. It's a language. Oh, must have been some sort of Neo-Hittite type language or Luvian or something, right? Like, I'm just uh, wondering. Nobody knows. Oh, it's an uh, it's an uh, extinct language today. It was sure. Indo-European. Yeah. And that's about what we know. Yeah, yeah. It uh, has a unique and problematic position in the Anatolian language groups. Hmm. Uh, we have very limited evidence and understanding of the language. That makes sense. It probably was a mixture too because of the Luvians and the 
Hittites, and then you have all these Greeks there now, and all these different languages all mixing together. So one historian, J.M. Kearns, thinks that Chris's real personal name is Karos. Karos. And Krovisas, which could have been his the way he was uh, spoken to, would mean the noble Karos. Ah. And Croesus won this power struggle over the Lydian crown because he had been a governor of an area which was very military. And he had fought oh, right. against the Cimmerians. The Cimmerians, I remember that, yes. So he was battle-tested. Yes. It's important to be a battle-tested king in the old days, that's for sure. It's also possible that this his brother, Pantaleon, was intended to be the successor and Croesus just used his military experience to fight a civil war and win. Mm-hmm. He probably had the mercenaries too. The Lydians are already doing a lot of things in the west of their country. Yeah. And Croesus will cause a problem for us because we have kept the Greeks separate, but Croesus will be a big thing in Greek history. Yeah, for sure. That's what we were saying that before in that other episode where the Greeks are getting all this pressure. Those are the Ionian Greeks, and that's and the Phocations are there. Those are the ones who found in Marseille and start battling with the Carthaginians. I think a lot of them just leave. And this is something... He, he does this to a much bigger extent than earlier Lydian kings. So he's definitely looking west now that his eastern border is secure because of the peace. Right. Right, and they're developing their army, and they're getting richer and richer and richer. Croesus also has a plan to build ships and attack the islands in the Greek <laughs> yeah. world. That's right, that's in Herodotus. Yes, it is. <laughs> so, Croesus uh, pretty much controls the what is Turkey today in the west. Yes. And now he's eyeing those nice Greek cities on the islands and Greece itself. Yeah. But it's also very much influenced by, by the Greek culture. Very much so. That whole area is, for sure. And remember, his mother was a Carian, who are semi-Greeks. Yeah, they are semi-Greeks. They fight in phalanxes. They wear things that are sort of like kind of Trojans and Greeks, sort of, yeah, mixed together. And now we need to talk about Graham Hancock. Oh, please. Yes. What, what is your impression of this, invest, uh, this investigative journalist? who is looking at ancient history. I think he uses zero evidence. He uses stories that are could be mean anything. And I think it's almost like trying to say there is no God because you can't prove it. Dis, you cannot disprove what he says, right? But you cannot prove anything that he says. And real historians and archaeologists do. And I'm just, so I'm because the archaeologists put out, I think I posted, I did, I posted on the Facebook page. And they put out a letter to Netflix saying, you should call this fiction because it's this disservice to all these archaeologists who are literally, he's like dissing them. And they're like, we do real work and you're like just making shit up. But anyway, I know you think it's interesting. So, and it's definitely a fun story. So sorry if I buzz killed it. <laughs> I agree with all you said. Okay. And I don't think it's such an interesting story, but the the Netflix show ancient apocalypse yeah it's still very entertaining but the reason i am so uh, i like graham hancock uh, i enjoy watching him it's so sorry it's sad that (laughs) 
he can't base things on fact. Right. But I, w- I read the book, The Sign and the Seal, in the 90s. Okay. And I was spellbound. And that's probably all garbage as well, but I, I really yeah. loved it. And then I looked at this ancient apocalypse series, and they went to so many interesting places. So you can watch the show like a like a nature show, pretty much. That okay, he sure. These, he has all these resources that he's never had before from Netflix. Yeah. So it's amazing. It's so beautiful. And one of the places he went to was the Derin Kuyu underground city in yeah. ancient Phrygia in Turkey. Okay. And I was amazed. So this is a, an underground city. It's a multi-level city extending to 85 meters below the surface. You could put 20,000 people in the city wow. together with yeah, together with enough food and cattle to actually live there for a long time. Cattle. Yeah, this place exists. It's um, Graham Hancock's idea was that the Atlanteans or this ancient culture he likes Mm -hmm. built this to protect people from um, a mysterious period of cooling like 12,000 years ago Mm -hmm. uh, when there was this ancient apocalypse. So they helped the people in, in what is today Turkey survive the apocalypse. This is probably not true. Oh, they would have found at least a hammer that they used to build it. <laughs> so the, <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> the main theory when this was built still makes it a super interesting place. Because it seems to have built, at least in part, by the Phrygians in the 8th or the 7th century BC. Wow, it's a long time ago to be digging in rock. To escape another apocalypse. And what was the big danger in the 8th and 7th centuries BC? Assyrians. Yes. Yeah. So they built these, this underground city and several others who were connected by tunnels to escape the Assyrians, possibly. The city was later used and probably expanded by Christians. Yes, I've heard of that. Yes, because there are churches. Yeah. There are like so many rooms down there. There are wine and oil presses, stables, cellars, storage rooms, and chapels. Amazing. They must have left, left airflow to let the stables, like you can't just have cows in there, like, you know, put another waste in there. It'll, it'll choke you with methane. So they must have really had it set up right. Yeah, but there are like uh, chimneys. And That's what I mean. Air right? circulation. Chimneys in and air circulation and everything. Only, only, only people could have figured that out are Atlanteans. There must be Atlanteans, yeah. Phrygians are stupid. They're not like Atlanteans. They know how to do all that stuff. So the first Christians were using these tunnels, this underground city, to escape the Muslim Arabs during the Arab-Byzantine Wars. Oh, okay, yeah. Between 780 and 1180 A.D., and then, of course, Timur Lenk appeared in the 14th century, uh, the great Mongolian warlord. Yeah. yeah. And then they used the cities again. To hide from them. Yes. And then the Cappadocian Greeks were using them to escape persecutions in the early 20th century. But Jeez. then people kind of forgot about these tunnels. 
so these enormous tunnels, these several underground cities were rediscovered in 1963 hmm. after a local guy tore down a wall in his home while renovating and found a mysterious no room. No freaking way. That's amazing. He's like, why is there a room behind my wall? What? And then he went in. This whole world. Oh, my God. And they digged, and they, but there is no end to this. And six years later, Derinkuyu was open for visitors. So now you can visit half the city today. Nice. So if some of you listeners have gone there, I want to hear your stories and see your pictures. Please. I really want to go to this place. I bet you it's near Ankiju's homeland. He's from southern Turkey. Oh. Yeah. Okay, back to the 580s. Okay. That was great. Thanks for sharing that with us, for sure. I was so amazed. There were more going on in the 580s. Yes. So we know that uh, the Egyptians didn't succeed in saving Jerusalem. No. And when Apries failed to do this, he had a mutiny in Egypt, in Aswan, that is way down the Nile. Yeah. Where there was an important military garrison and they just rebelled against the pharaoh. Which is not common in Egypt. Yeah. So then what happened? Herodotus says that Aprius is campaigning in the Levant. But uh, I doubt this. Mm -hmm. He could get it mixed up. He could have had the last, he could have been Samaricus. Yeah, because Aprius is, he can't go by sea because the Phoenician cities have much better navies. And so he must go by land, and the Babylonians are all around, so I think he's occupied back in Egypt. Yeah. And there's no lasting conquest from the Egyptians in the Levant. Mm -mm, As usual. But at some point, the Phoenician city's loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar is in doubt. And especially Tyre. Especially. You mentioned Tyre, perhaps, in in your show with Gil. Yeah. Yeah, well, Tyre is the home city of Carthage, too, so that's why it's a big deal. Yes, and at some point, Nebuchadnezzar gets uh, tired of Tyre yeah. and besieges it. In This starts perhaps in 584 BC, and it lasts for the rest of the decade. So at the end of this show, he is still besieging Tyre. I'm not surprised, because we, if, if we all know how hard it is to besiege Tyre. Of course, Tyre can supply itself from the sea, so it's hard right. to... But right. this is a super long-lasting siege. Yeah. They're usually able to really hold out. They usually destroy... There's like a city on the land, mainland, but then Tyre is really an island. So that's how it's hard to siege it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I suppose this causes even more Phoenicians to go to Carthage. Exactly. Where you're safe from these empires. Exactly. I mean, who wants to deal with that shit? I was like, yeah, let me out of here. Especially, like I said before, if I'm a sailor and that's my profession. Like you said, they probably have an alpha. They have the alphabet, so they have flyers. Come to Carthage. There's no Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, get away from Tyre. Go with Hannah on the expedition. You get to carry hairy girls. (laughs) You always come up with a good one. (laughs) I would go. Yeah, I bet you would. I bet you would. I definitely would get out of there too. For some reason, Nebuchadnezzar is uh, pissed at the Jews again and makes a third deportation in 582. So even more Jews go to Babylon for captivity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 590s and then the 580s and then another one in the 580s. And in 580, maybe, the king of Anshan dies, Cyrus I. Okay. He's succeeded by his son, Cambyses I. We have no records from Cambyses' lifetime because anything he did will be shadowed by his son, Cyrus the Great. Very great, too. Herodotus says that Cambyses, the king of Anshan, that is the king of the Persians, uh, vassal of the Medes, was a man of good family and quiet habits. Exactly. That's all he says about him. We'll talk about that when we talk about Cyrus, for sure. Cambyses was reportedly married to Princess Mandane of Media, Astyages' daughter. Mandane. And uh, that's the mother of Cyrus the Great. And that's correct. I mean, I think we only know about Cambyses for real from Cyrus when he just says that was my father was, you know, king of king of Anshan. Yes. And Darius too, or Darius, I think too. Herodotus also says that uh, Astyages chose Cambyses to marry his daughter because Cambyses was no threat to the Median throne. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And Herodotus also says that Astyages had dreamt that his daughter would give birth to one who would rule Asia. Yes. I'm going to, just so you know, I'm going to, I have that whole thing written out in the Cyrus thing. Yeah, we'll talk more about that in our next episode. Yeah. That's a great story. So we'll end with um, a little battle. Oh. On Sicily. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's right, I forgot about that. You got that? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> I only looked at that a little. So, Greeks are in Sicily. Yeah. Carthage is in Sicily. But there have not been any great confrontations yet. Mm-hmm. There are also the Illumians, which is a native tribe of Sicily. Yeah. More Greek settlers arrive. And this Greek city is Selenius, which uh, is fighting the Illumians, the natives. Mm-hmm. And the Phoenicians help the natives against the Greeks. Okay. So the Greeks are defeated, and they set themselves up in a place called Lypera. Okay. And these Greeks are kind of wild, so this place becomes a pirate city. Aye. And they start attacking all 
trading vessels, including Greek trading, vessel, uh, trading vessels. Arg. The black beard of the 580s. Yes. <laughs> that's that's So basically, this is the first conflict between the Greeks and the Carthaginians in Sicily, which they will have conflicts for hundreds of years. This is the first one then, I think. Yes, we also have a, a piece of information that there is a, a king, but this is a Greek source, so we don't know what king is, of the Carthaginians called Malchus, who is fighting Libyan tribes in Africa. Okay. And after defeating these Libyan tribes, he comes to Sicily and kicks Greek butt. Oh. He takes this this pirate city, I guess. Yeah. And then he sends part of it to Tyre to pay tribute to the god Melkart. But as Tyre is uh, besieged by Nebuchadnezzar, they are probably very grateful for this. Probably. Malchus then goes to Sardinia to conquer it for Carthage. Wow. But the the natives of Sardinia uh, defeats him. Oh, no, sorry. Not not so good, Malchus. But he's doing this on the command of the Carthaginian Senate, of course. Okay. And this is a severe cost for the Senate. Remember, Carthage is a company. Right. So they uh, fire him and his entire army. Oh, fired. So he gets a note that you are fired and he's like, nah, I'm not fired. I'm the king. So he returns to Carthage and besieges it. Oh, jeez. And then the board, the Senate, says, but wait a minute, that was our army. Now it's besieging us. <laughs> and we don't have another army. So they surrender to Malchus. Ah, good plan. Malchus assumes power in Carthage, but is later deposed and executed. Oh, wow. That's a good story. And at this point... This army of Malchus was a citizen militia, not unlike the later or the Roman army of the time. Yeah. But then the Senate in Carthage decides that this is too dangerous. So now we will use mainly mercenaries. Okay. And we will see later Carthage using a lot of mercenaries to fight. They got the money for it. And that was the story of Malchus and the fight in Sicily. That's a great story. I did not know that one. Thank you for sharing that one for sure. And I leave us with uh, Aprius, the new pharaoh of Egypt. His building, things in the Levant isn't going too well. He had this rebellion. He managed to put it down. Mm-hmm. But Aprius is not long for this world because trouble is brewing in his ancient kingdom. Oh, yeah, Aprius. But next time, next time we'll talk about I earlier said that Nebuchadnezzar II was probably the most famous person we have ever talked about in this show. But here is a clear rival to him. Cyrus the Great. Yes. So the next episode, we can talk about Cyrus's um, humble humble, beginnings, maybe. That sound good? That sounds amazing. Yeah, because he'd be born around now, so... I try. I try to get him born in the last decade, but you stopped me. Yeah, he, he was. Yeah, I mean, this whole era is when he's born. So we could do this whole story on our next episode, the the foundation story of Cyrus. We will, you know, we can get his background now. I waited so long to talk about Cyrus. Yeah, I'm learning so much about him. He's really amazing to me. He's like, you know, Alexander the Great's one of the biggest, best figures in history. But like, anyway. Cyrus is up there, too. Although I still maintain that the empire he eventually rules is just another incarnation of the Assyrian Empire. Kind of, yeah. 
but he makes one important policy change that the Assyrians never figured out. Yeah. What if you were this powerful kingdom and you didn't massacre people who didn't pay? <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> what if you made this powerful kingdom attractive mm-hmm. and the empire something to aspire to be a part of? Right. So Cyrus is like an Assyrian king who is good at marketing and PR. Yes, yes. But we'll talk so much about Cyrus. We'll begin in the next episode. In the next episode, we'll start it. But yeah, we'll be talking about Cyrus for a while. So yeah, definitely check out our Facebook page, right? And our patreon.com slash fan of history. Yes, please do. And thank you to all the patrons who support this show. That's amazing. And that's... One of the reasons we are still doing this after so many years. Yeah, we do appreciate it. I enjoy it. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, our main yeah. main reason for doing this is our fanatical love of history. It is. And so we can meet girls. It helps us meet girls. Uh, <laughs> I never met a girl because of this podcast. Never, never, never. Pretty much turns them off. So, yeah. Yes. So, Christy, she listens. Thank you, Christy. I love that you listen. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Cheers, Dan. Catch you next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fan of history. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time.